Morning. Morning. All this chat about it being a nice warm building. I just hope you're not going to go to sleep on me this morning. <laughs> I'm Dan. I'm one of the leaders here. We're, uh, we're doing a series we're calling Grand Designs, and it's a study on the book of Nehemiah. And we're, uh, we, we had part one a few weeks ago, uh, which was getting God's heart. Part two was getting God's promises. And today is part three, which is get in God's team. And we're really looking at what is God wanting to do with your life and mine to make us more useful for him, to play our part in his incredible kingdom and uh, his mission to build his church. And Nehemiah teaches us many of these great lessons. So we're going to read today from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 to 20. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down, and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I'd said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Haranite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What's this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Jesus, today we just want to pray that you'd speak to us through your word. Come and change us, Lord, we pray. Amen. When I was 13 years old, I had the misfortune of being asked or told that I was playing in the schoolhouse cricket team. Now, when I say misfortune, you'll understand that this wasn't my choice. This wasn't something that I was up for or volunteering for, but something, I I was in one of those schools where, you know, to give you a rounded education, they they would say to you, well, part of your rounded education is to make you do something you're really terrible at and watch other people just laugh at you as you make that effort. And my teacher had said, look, I really think that you should be part of the house cricket team. And I was like, oh, no. And the cricket captain, when he heard this news, he also said, oh, no. (laughs) And uh, I remember that day. It was a Wednesday afternoon in the school I was in. And it was a lovely sunny day. It was the Celts versus the Romans. And... The thing about cricket, if you don't know the rules of cricket, it's fine, I don't either. (laughs) 
But here's the thing, pretty much any other sport that you do at school, there's some place on the pitch or the field that you can hide. In football, you can find yourself a million miles away from the ball. And you're like, yuck, I just never came near me all game. Oh, wow. In rugby, you can just accidentally miss that throw, which is kind of what some of our teams do, isn't it? And, uh, but, but with cricket, it has that annoying thing. It's on a rotation. It comes around to you eventually. There's 11 players, and everybody gets to bat, and everybody gets to bowl. And we'd already had our batting's innings, and that was nothing to write home about at all. But um, I, I remember as the, the fielding was going on, and I, my, my, uh, my captain had said, said don't worry, he says, we're going to put you on last, because uh, we're going to put all our best bowlers on first. I thought, great, okay, I'm, I'm the worst here. The other team, spotting what was happening, they decided to put on their least good players first on batting and their best players last. And so as my turn came as the 11th man and the, the captain just said to me, just do your best, Hudson. And he gave me the ball and I kind of looked at this thing and I was like, what am I meant to do with this? And then I looked up the field to, the, uh, up to who was batting. And it was none other than the best cricket player in the entire school. His name was Simon Middleton. And I remember Simon, because on that day, when he saw me with the bowling ball, he smiled and he gave me a wave. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, right, here we go. And I, I was doing pep talks to myself, and I, I, I did that thing with the bowling ball, shining it. You know, I was like, that, that's going to that's gonna do it. And then... Like every great bowler in, in history, you do the hop, skip, and the jump. You sort of do the... And, and you bowl the ball. And just as I was heading for it, I thought, I, I need to think of something in my head to just try and get this guy in my sights. And so as I ran towards, ran towards the crease and I kind of... I did the, the sort of the bit of letting go of the ball, I just closed my eyes momentarily. <laughs> and I thought of myself to be Ian Botham or one of the other great footballing greats of history. And I, I launched that ball with all of my might down the pitch... And I just imagined for a split second what could be happening. And then I opened my eyes. And I kind of looked around and thought, where's the ball? <laughs> and to, to my shock, to my horror, I looked down at the floor <laughs> and five feet in front of me and moving slowly towards the wicket at the other end was the ball I had just bowled. It had just completely smashed onto the ground and was just doing a pea roller along the floor at about this speed. Now, everybody was having a bit of a giggle about it, but this ball kept on moving. And, and uh, the, the guy behind the wicket, the, the fielder, he, he kind of said to Simon Middleton, the great batsman, he said, he said you know what, Simon? He said, I, I don't think that ball's going to even make it to the wicket, which gave, which gave cocky Simon Middleton something to really think about. He said, yeah. So he got his bat, and he just lifted it out of the way of the wickets as he watched my ball getting slower and slower towards the wickets. You know what happened? My ball just made it to the wickets. <laughs> Bowled him out. <laughs> I was riding pretty high by this point. And uh, there was another two balls in that match that I bowled, and they were awful balls. They were too high and too slow. But with equal cockiness, the batsmen thought, well, we can just whack this one with all our might. They hit them both in the air and both got caught out by other fielders <laughs> in the team. I scored a hat-trick on my debut for the house cricket team. It was pretty amazing. In fact, in a comedy moment, they declared me to be the man of the match. 
Now, the funny thing about that whole episode, as I've reflected on it over many years, is that I'd, I mean, that, that was my sporting highlight ever. I'd love to say that that was my moment of greatness, that that was my moment where I got proven as just an amazing cricket player with ability like the world had never seen before. But the truth of that story is this, that my very ordinary and subordinary skills turned into something extraordinary because I was playing as a part of a team of people who made all of my mistakes look good. And those people from the, the wicketkeeper who told the batsman, hey, lift your bat up, that'd be a good idea, to the guys who caught those bad balls, it was through a team effort. And you know what? Team is an extraordinary gift from God. Great things get achieved through team. So it's no great surprise as we're studying this character, Nehemiah, today. A man who we've already found in chapter 1 has a great heart from God to do amazing things. He prays great prayers. He knows the promises of God inside out. He reads his Bible. But part three in his journey is this, that he understands that to achieve anything great with his life, he's going to have to do it with other people. It says in verse 11, he says, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. It began with him and he gathered a few other people. He realized his need for other people. Today, I hope as we talk and look at these verses, my hope for you is that you see your need of other people more than you do right now. It's easy to be a loner. It's easy to be somebody who says, I, I, just, I just do my own thing. Somebody even wrote that song, I'm a rock, I'm an island. People think that way. They think, you know, I don't need anybody. It's my opinion that counts. Today, I would love for you, if you're married here, to love and appreciate your spouse more than you've ever appreciated them before. That if you're part of a team in the workplace, that you would love and appreciate and serve your team in a whole new way. If you have children, then you would uh, understand the dynamics of family life and, and work on that team that God has given you in your home. If you're part of a small group or a team like Chris has been talking about this morning, then you would give yourselves diligently and wholeheartedly in making sure that they are the best small groups and teams that you've ever been a part of. Because it, it's very interesting. In the book of Nehemiah, the enemy has never been mentioned once until this point in the story. See, as long as you're a person who just has a heart for God, who prays prayers for God, who reads the Bible, that's of little consequence to, to many people. But when you begin to do something with your life that involves other people, when you begin to become part of a community called the church, when you begin to say, you know what, if we do these things together, maybe we could see the world change through the love of Jesus. At that point, the enemy begins to get interested. And we find that those sort of dark stages of the closing of that chapter we read, that suddenly from stage left, there's these three shadowy figures who suddenly start noticing what is going on. And from this point on, they oppose. We're going to see that more in weeks to come. The Bible starts with a team. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And it starts with God the Father issuing commands into the darkness of the unformed earth and and saying, let there be light. And John chapter 1 tells us also that everything was made through Jesus the Son. Genesis 1 also tells us that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were all active in creating the world. It was a team creation. And isn't it incredible? When God made the first human beings, he made Adam and Eve, and he made them a team. In fact, God the team said, let us, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. It goes on to say, male and female, he created them. God loves team. God loves marriage. God loves it when we work together with other people. The first people that Jesus calls when he walks the face of the earth is he, he, he gathers a group of 12. The thing he leaves behind when he goes back to heaven, there's 11 of those apostles left. He doesn't just leave it to a successor. He says, no, the, the way the church is to be built is through team through many people released into their gifting. And so we begin to see Nehemiah's team beginning to form today. And I wonder if you uh, noticed how these verses appeared today as we read them, because it's a little bit strange when you read it. If you put yourself in the scenario, in the situation that Nehemiah's talking about as he's talking in the first person, we begin to see something slightly unusual And these next sort of four bullet points, if you like, I'm talking about how good teams function. And I want you to see some things from this passage that we've read. So in verses 15 and 16, Nehemiah says, Well, finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because as yet I'd said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. So here's what had happened one dark, shadowy night in Jerusalem. A man called Nehemiah had arrived, and nobody knew who he was. But there was a group of Israelite people there, and somehow he got chatting to some of them. But he didn't tell them anything about what his plan was. In fact, after three days, this is what Nehemiah does. He just says to some of the guys, he says, uh, fancy coming for a walk tonight. Midnight, up on the old city wall. And bless these guys, they said, yeah, all right. They said, well, we'll come for a walk. What's it about? He says, I'm not going to tell you. And so he takes these guys up onto the city wall. Now, I think there's something already interesting about their response, which I just want to make note of, is this, that they did it. Without particularly knowing a lot of the detail, they said, yeah, we're up for that. We're up for a walk on the city wall at midnight tonight. Why don't, why don't we do that? There was an appetite in them for something different. I don't know if you're the sort of person that finds yourself overly busy. I dare say living in Edinburgh, you probably are. That you find yourself uh, being asked incessantly to get involved with things and to do things. There's two extremes of people. There's people who say yes to everything. And there's people who say no to everything. And the danger of being a person who says yes to everything is you're just presented with all the needs that happen around you is this, that with a loving heart and with a great desire to serve others, you you say, people say, hey, could you you be involved in in 
in this particular task, and, and you say, sure, that's fine, and you start to spin a plate. Let's call that serving on the practical team, for example. And then somebody else says, hey, it'd be great if you could do kids' work. And you say, yeah, I'd love to help with kids' work. And you start spinning another plate. And then somebody else says, gosh, you know what, you're really good at kick cooking. Why don't you serve on the alpha team and, and do the cooking? And you're like, okay, let's just uh, spin another plate here. And then people keep asking you different things, and you end up with more and more plates. Here's the problem when you say yes to everything. Do you like my plate spinning? This is, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> that inevitably, something comes along. Nehemiah comes along, and he says, hey, I've got a really exciting proposition for you. Do you want to hear about it? And you're like, no. <laughs> Can't you see I'm spinning so many plates? I haven't got room for anything else right now. And you find that you can miss the very opportunity that God wants to give you just through sheer busyness. And, that, and that's a, those are good things. But there's a danger of over-busyness that I want you to be on your guard against. To make sure that there's always some capacity in your life. To be able to say, hey, I'm busy, but... I can say yes to that opportunity because I feel like God might be in it. Here's the second group of people, and, and they just have a tendency to say no. It's kind of what happens as you get older. You learn to just say, no, I'm not sure I want to be involved with that. I'm, you're, you're less excitable. You're just more likely to say no. That there can be a danger that you, just through a more hard-hearted type of thing, you, you end up saying no to God-given opportunities, because you, you're, you're saying, oh, well, I'm not sure, I don't know, it just sounds like another walk, another wild goose chase, I'm not sure what's going on here, so, so Nehemiah is a no. And in doing so, you can miss the very thing that God is calling you to do. What I find fascinating about the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells is that two godly people walk past a half-dead person on the side of the road and in their head they have completely rationalised it to say, well, this is fine, I'm busy. I'm doing something else. He's half-dead. Yet in their head, what they were doing was more important, perhaps because they were hard-hearted or perhaps because they were over-busy and they had no capacity to respond. Let's make sure that we take that middle ground where... We give ourselves fully, but we make sure we're soft-hearted enough to respond. As human beings, we can find ourselves with a very blinkered approach to humanity. We, we kind of think if everything is going all right in the bubble we live in, then everything must be going okay. And for a generation of Israelites who lived just before Nehemiah's time, they'd come back to Jerusalem. And they'd got busy. They were meant to be building the temple, and they got busy with their own houses and stuff. And a prophet, God had to send a prophet along who said these words. He said, Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? God had to kind of interject and say, Hey, remember what you were here for, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city. And they're like, Oh, yeah. Gosh, we've got lovely houses. And God says, I know you've got lovely houses. But what I want you to do is to build my temple. There was something of a reality check that Nehemiah did with these people. It's quite interesting. When you read some of the, the people who write about it, he says, he took them up to the south end of Jerusalem. Most of the attacks on Jerusalem came from the north, which means the worst bit of the wall to go and show them in terms of what needed to be done was the north. He took them to the south, which was just a little bit broken down. And 
he showed them and he said, and here's the fascinating thing, he, he just walked off. He walked off. He takes these people up on top of the wall. He then walks off and does a tour of the walls by himself. I wonder why he does that. You might have been expecting a pep talk from him. You might have been expecting the guided tour for him to take them around and say, this is what we need to do here and here. He leaves them alone. Do you know there's something about that which is so important in being a good team member? And that is this, that you're not just waiting on the team leader all the time to just tell you what to do and what to think and what to believe. Nehemiah leaves them alone. I wonder what that conversation looked like. As they're on top of the wall, this few guys, we don't know how many there were, but for some of them, I, I guess the first five minutes they were maybe talking about the weather and it was getting a bit chilly in Jerusalem at this time of year. For the second five minutes, maybe they were talking about the Rugby World Cup and who they thought was going to win and, and whether Israel stood a chance this year and all that sort of thing. <laughs> For the third five minutes, perhaps they're thinking, hang on, where's that Nehemiah guy who invited us on this walk? He's gone. He's, what's he doing over there? But then I bet, after half an hour or an hour of waiting around, Nehemiah's plan begins to take effect. Is this that they begin to look around and they say, gosh, this wall's a bit of a mess. Gosh, we've forgotten about the wall. We've built the temple, we've built our houses. What's going? Why has nobody done something about this? Because when Nehemiah comes back to talk to them, what you find is his pep talk lasts all of two sentences. And his opening words are this, you see, you see the trouble we're in. And they were like, yeah, we totally get it because we're standing on top of the problem here. Broken down city walls, defenses that were no good, leaving themselves vulnerable to enemy attacks. Any journey that God puts you on will involve you being in a team. And at times when you're the, the person you're looking to, to lead you, you'll find through God-given providence they won't be there. And what you do then is all important. What you do when your boss is away. If you're just entering the workplace, then here's a tip for you. The, your boss doesn't want to be the kind of boss who just tips up and gives you a list of instructions every day. And they don't want to be the kind of person who comes back and, and they say, so how are you doing? And for you to be sick, they're saying, yeah, I've done all that. Yeah, fine. They want you to be the kind of person who says, well, what needs doing around here? How can I engage myself in the process? How can I be involved in the task that we're trying to achieve here? A few years ago, 15 years ago, Matthew and Anne and me and Julie and Phil and Karen and Rajan Alps and Rob and Joni and Angelo and, and a few other people came to Edinburgh. We moved here to help start this church called King's. And at the forefront of our mind back then was not, this, not that there was anything wrong with the other churches in Edinburgh, but it was this in our mind that 460,000 people in Edinburgh don't go to church. They have no interest in it. They don't love Jesus. They haven't understood how amazing he is and his offer of forgiveness of sins. And so we began to think about how we could make a difference, how we could plant a church. And so we started just a gathering in a house and we 
started thinking, God, could you do something here? God, could you bring people to know you here? And there's always a danger, isn't it, when a church gets to a certain size that you think, gosh, we're doing fine here, aren't we? We're doing fine. Here's how I rate that we're doing. We're doing 200 people better than the 460,000 people that we observed didn't go to church 15 years ago. There's so much more that God wants to do through us and through you. I want you to stir your heart towards action and to look what needs doing. One of the best things you can do is take a walk to see some things that you don't normally see. You come into a church like King's and you can think, gosh, it all seems to be happening rather well and, and you know, there doesn't seem to be great needs. Take a walk into an area of church life that you would not have any great resonance with. Here's a challenge. Why don't you join a team and say, look, I, I don't know much about making tea or coffee or, or children, but I just wonder if I could experiment and see if God's got a calling on my life to serve in this area. Maybe today God wants to take you on a walk. Maybe you could go for a walk with somebody like Jenny Hartley and see the incredible work she does befriending elderly people with a team of people. Maybe you could be involved with that, not as a lifelong commitment, but to say, hey, could I just come along and, and see what you're doing? Maybe God's got something for me in that. Maybe it's to help out with a toddler group on a Wednesday morning where we're seeing so many mums and dads from the community brought in and Rachel Fleming is doing a brilliant job inviting them to parenting courses and Alpha. And Every term she says the same thing. She says, we just don't have enough volunteers to really do what we're doing properly. I wonder if that could be something that God's calling you into. Teams begin with people who recognize the need, and Nehemiah's crew seem to see the need. Here's the, the, the second point. They received God-given leadership. There's something about leadership in the Bible which is a wonderful gift from God. There's something about leaders that seem to come into a highly stagnated situation, and they can bring fresh fresh faith and energy to it to make a difference. And Nehemiah's, the, the walls have been collapsed like that for many decades and nobody has done anything. He arrives on the scene, he says, I've got a plan. And everybody suddenly starts saying, that sounds exciting, count us in. You find it again and again through the pages of the Old Testament and the New. One time, in the Old Testament, you find two opposing armies. There's the Israelites and the Philistines. And the Philistines come out every day and they've got a champion called Goliath and he, he, he goads the Israelites every day. He says, come on then, just one against one. You beat me, we'll all be your slaves. I beat you, you all become our slaves. Winner takes all. And the Bible says that nothing happened day after day after day. Not one of the, the king's army could come up to the mark, to fight the battle against Goliath. But a little shepherd boy who turns up and he spent his life writing hymns and practicing with a slingshot to kill wolves. And he says to the king, he says, no, king, he says, this, this guy's annoying me. He says, if you let me, I will get him for you. And they're like, oh, David, I'm not sure you can do that. I mean, I know you've killed wolves and things, but this, this giant is so much bigger than a wolf. And David's like, I know, I can't miss a target that size. He's huge. And David wins a victory because leadership breaks a stagnation. 
It breaks the stalemate. Always look for people that you can follow who bring a sense of being able to affect change, who bring fresh faith. It's always good when you're assessing leaders and thinking, can I follow this person, this man, this woman? It's helpful to follow Nehemiah's example that leaders, good leaders should always be people who are active followers themselves. So when Nehemiah is giving his chat and he says, he says I began to tell them about the, the hand of God on my life. They were like, yeah, great, tell us the story. So he could tell them a genuine story. He said, well, a few months ago I was working for the king. I was the, the, the highest ranking civil servant in the land. He said, I, I, one day I went before the king and I kind of risked everything by sharing what was in my heart. I told him, king, I'd love to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. My people are in disgrace. And the king amazingly didn't say, well, go to prison because you'll clearly have some other agenda. The king said, okay, go. And then Nehemiah said, and here's the amazing thing. As I left, I turned to the king and I said, king, how about you pay for all the building materials that we'll need to rebuild Jerusalem? And the king said, yes. So Nehemiah shares this story, and you can feel faith beginning to rise. Here's a man, he's got a call from God, and he's bringing all the resources necessary in order to rebuild this wall. Can we follow him? Well, yeah, because he's got some credibility. If you feel God's got a call on your life towards leadership, then you do well to spend your life building credibility in whatever situation you're in, to show yourself to be somebody reputable. And they received him. I love this about this story. You've got some elders of the Jewish people. These were senior people themselves. They were busy people. They were leaders. Where you get leaders, you get opinions. And yet for these people, they said, okay, we've got some opinions, but we are willing to follow you, Nehemiah. Here's the third thing. They recognized the need. They received God-given leadership. Third thing, they rallied to make it happen. They said, let's rebuild. Let's do it. And you find something fascinating about this small army of people that forms to rebuild Jerusalem. You'll read about some of the places that, that, that they were busy building. There's all these different gates. There's the new gate. There's the sheep gate. There's the Dung Gate. I guess that wasn't a popular one. That's where all the city excrement got taken out. And you find mixed responses. So uh, you, you find it in verse 5. It talks about all these different groups of people. It says, The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Isn't that fascinating? So this wasn't an across-the-board success. Loads of people were saying, Whatever's needed, Nehemiah, count us in. There was a small group of people, and they began to look down their noses, and they said, you know what, this isn't my gift. I'm a noble. You know, why don't you give me a leadership role, Nehemiah, and I can tell the people what to do with the bricks. And he's like, no, I'd really rather you just got stuck in. In doing so, they missed out on the whole plan of God for their life in their generation, because they were sitting there with their arms folded, waiting for somebody else to ask them to do something more interesting. Check these guys out, though. 
In verse 8, Uzziel, son of Hahiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Raphael, son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. By contrast, you find a load of people who say, you know what, my skill set is secondary. It doesn't matter what the thing is that I'm especially good at. What's more important is that we have a city that's intact, that is protected from enemies. The goldsmith could have played his Trump gifting card. He could have waltzed in and said, you know, Nehemiah, if, uh, if bling's your thing, <laughs> you know, if, if as a leader you really want to set yourself apart, I could do you a gold ring, maybe with an inset stone. I, I can help you, man. The perfume maker. He had to be French, didn't he? <laughs> maybe I could uh, dab the workers with cologne. <laughs> The smelly armpits of the people with all the working, maybe I can help them with some deodorant or something like that. No, the perfume maker doesn't say, this is my gift. He says, give me some rocks and I'll rebuild the wall. He saw what was important. Uh, I'm making this point, because normally in church life we make exactly the opposite point, which is this. Find your gift and make sure you do it with all your might, because actually that's the thing you're going to be most effective in. And that's a true and a right point. But the Bible says there's something more important about you using your giftings, and it's the attitude that you do it with. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, after listing so many gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to his church, tongue speaking, prophecy, teaching, administration, all these wonderful things, Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. This is what it's like when we bring our gifts into church and we say, well, the main thing is that people rally to my gifts. The main thing is I find an opportunity to do the thing that I'm good at. No, the main thing is you do what's needed. You do what's needed. God loves it when we serve. And we often find our gifts growing in all sorts of areas that we didn't know when we look for what's useful rather than to use our gifts. A friend, um, Abina, who's just sat on the front here, she asked me a couple of months ago, she said, can I ask you a question? She said, said, I've heard some teaching recently, and this teacher said that you can ask any great leader these two questions and they'll be able to give you a clear answer. And uh, I I was flattered, I was honoured that uh, I thought, you've come to me, wow. And then she said, she said, she said, and I'm asking you first. She said, I'm going to talk to Matt and Luke as well. She said, but I thought I'd ask you first. And I thought, yes, you've, you've come to me first. <laughs> and then she asked me these two ridiculously hard questions that I had no answer to at all. The first one was, she said, apparently every great leader can answer this question, what's the biggest mistake you've made in your life? And I thought, are we limited to one? <laughs> I mean, one a week I could give you. I could, I could tell you about mistakes I made in my family, at church, in leadership. I, I, I couldn't even begin to articulate the answer to that one. The other one, it, I think I finally came to an answer. It took me about three months to get an answer to it. So if you're looking for greatness in leaders, then 50% is what you get with me, okay? 50% greatness. Here's my answer to... The question was, well, what... Uh, which we don't need that on the screen, thanks. Um, the, the, um, the, the question was, well, 
what piece of wisdom would you give to people who are coming up through leadership and, and wanting to develop their leadership skills? Here's my answer after thinking about it for three months. For me, my experience was do what's needed. Don't wait around for the opportunity for your preference of gifting. And that's been my experience through my whole Christian life. Do what's needed. Don't wait to be asked. And I feel that when you do that, God grows your gifting. I felt as a teenager, God spoke to me about teaching. I've got to be honest, that, I haven't waited around for those opportunities, but God has given me so many other opportunities where I've learned all sorts of other things which are probably far more useful in many parts of life. Do what's needed. Find the dungate of King's Church and say, I will serve there. You know, Jesus is the ultimate gifted person. Jesus came to the earth and he was the best preacher. He was the best miracle worker. He was the best friend. He was the best leader. He was the wisest Pharisee. He was the wisest of all of that generation. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't just stop at doing what he was good at. He actually went on to do what was necessary. He went on to do what was necessary to take your sin and my sin away. He suffered and died on a cross in order that you and I might be reconciled to God. He did what was painful and costly, not just what his gifts were. God wants you and I to be people who build his church. I wonder if we could just have the musicians up as we come to a conclusion here. God wants you and I to be people who rally to his call. There were, there was a, as they were rebuilding that city wall, they were all spread out all over the city and they were all doing their thing. They were all busy with their rocks, putting them on top of the walls. But Nehemiah gave a signal and he said, whenever you hear somebody with a trumpet, whenever you hear a trumpet being sounded, it means we're under attack in a different part of the city and whatever you're doing, you're to drop it and run over there. And it was their way of defending the city during a time of building. And I can just imagine being that guy who spent the whole morning pushing a rock up a hill and he's about to put it on top of the wall and the trumpet goes. And he must have been thinking, oh, surely this is more of a priority than me running over there. But the call was clear. No, you, you drop whatever you're doing and run over here because this thing is more important. There's something more important than you or me or our giftings today and it's this, that Jesus built his church. And while God wants to use you and will use your gifting, there's such a right thing when we just bring our giftings back to God and say, you know, Lord, if there's a, a higher need, a higher calling on my life, then I will lay that down. For some of you, you go through periods of life where you've had to lay down gifting for the sake of having children or, or other things, and, and that's a good and a godly thing to do. God restores those things. 
Maybe today you're not a Christian, as Luke was saying earlier. Maybe your response to this call today is this, that you need to follow a leader and his name is Jesus. And maybe today is about you coming on to Team Jesus. Come and joining in his plans and his purposes. going to pray right now and just take a moment to respond. You know, becoming a Christian is a very simple step. It's to know that God so loved the world. It's to know that he gave himself for you. And it's to respond. I'm going to count to three, and I'm going to ask on the count of three, if you want to become a Christian today, to just raise your hand. First point, number one, God loves you. Point number two, he gave himself for you. He died for you to take away your sin, that you might know him. Number three, it's time to respond. Just raise your hand if you would like to ask Jesus to be your saviour today. Maybe as we close today, God wants to recommission you afresh to build his church. Maybe he's challenging you about a certain team situation or just being more involved, make sure that you hear his voice. You soften your heart and you respond to him. Let's just close in a song of worship.